Welcome to No Hacks Show, a weekly podcast where we talk to smart people about the many ways you can optimize your online presence. And this episode is slightly different because we're not talking to a consultant or a practitioner or anyone who is working for an agency. We're talking to a man who built a brand himself through the power of content, completely from scratch. It only took seven years, but yeah, it, it, it worked wonderfully. And that person is David Tao, who is co-founder and CEO of Barband. I'll let you talk about Barband a little bit later. I'm not going to introduce to the intro of the company because you will do that much better than I can. I'll just say you're a veteran of health and fitness industry, and you have nearly a decade of experience in producing content and running and building editorial teams in this space. So David, I want to say welcome to the podcast. What a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. And uh, I'm hoping that we can get into some info and experience, things that work, things that didn't work, that's really useful to the listeners here. So excited about that. If anyone has stories to share about content, I, I think it's you. So let me just use this as an icebreaker question. So you also serve as a color commentator in, in weightlifting competitions, international and national. Like, How does that like help with Barband and, and with the content you produce? Obviously, you're doing two things at the same time, right? It's actually tied in to Barband. We started doing forming these organizational partnerships. So one that we've had for over six years now is our partnership with USA Weightlifting, which is the official governing body of weightlifting in the United States. So when they host national or even international competitions in the United States, for example, the World Championships, Pan American Championships, we help power and sponsor the color commentary. A few years ago, or when that started almost six years ago or whatever, whenever it was, we realized that we didn't have a roster of color commentators who had experience with this. So I plugged in and taught myself to do it and then started helping to train people to do it. That's actually very much through Barben's organizational partnerships. And it was the sort of thing where early on in a startup, you don't necessarily have someone who can fit this very specific role. So as a founder, you have to teach yourself to fit that very specific role. I had to learn on the fly and teach myself to be a weightlifting color commentator. And it was a ton of fun. It's a really fun part of the job that we still do today. So you mentioned the word startup. Do you consider Barband to be a startup or more like an online magazine and, and a media media company? I very much considered us to be a startup until we were acquired. Spoiler alert, we okay. were acquired a little bit earlier this year. But we were very much we very much ran like a startup right up until that point. And in many ways we still do. It's not like we got acquired and everything changed. In fact, not a lot changed about our, our process. We still produce the same types of content, we produce more content now. I do think that it's very easy to fall into the trap of saying, oh, you're a content producer. You're not a startup. You shouldn't treat it like a business. Now, we're not a giant tech company. We never will, right? But the principles of, okay, what is the return we're getting on investment for every dollar that we put into something? And I think people lose track of that. Content is your product, right? Content is our product. We're not necessarily selling someone a subscription. We're not selling someone a product that they get shipped to their door, but we're still producing a product. And we have to look at the financial impact of every product we produce, of every piece of content we produce. So when I hear people say, I'm so glad you asked that, when I hear people say, oh, we're content producers, we're not really a startup, I balk at that a little bit. Because if you don't see content as your product, you're going to run into issues later on, I promise. That's great advice. This is really good advice. So how did you end up, let's go back before 2016 when you started Barband, how did you end up in the world of weightlifting, strength, strength training, all of that? Yeah. In college, I 
got into weightlifting. I was actually rehabbing an injury from another sport, and I got into Olympic-style weightlifting, which is the snatch and clean and jerk. There are all these different strength sports modalities, and one impetus for starting Barbend was that we wanted a place where people could get info on them all under one roof. There's CrossFit, there's weightlifting, powerlifting. I've dabbled in all of these. But I got into it in college, basically. And then after college, as I was getting to the digital content space, which I've been in for well over a decade now, I think I need to update my bio. It's almost a decade to turn into well over a decade. I still had that as part of my lifestyle. I still love lifting weights. I love strength training and exploring all these different forms. I actually did a little bit of consulting work and writing for CrossFit early on in the CrossFit mm-hmm. days, in the early days of CrossFit Media. Did a little bit of work consulting for other fitness adjacent sites. And it was just part of some what I did anyway, right? So when I found that there was an opportunity uh, and I recognized there was a gap to start this website or this web property for people who were interested in this stuff, I was like, oh, I get to combine my like hobby and my lifestyle interest with something that is not my day job, but I was interested in it becoming my day job. That, that's the dream scenario for everyone, isn't it? So the motivation to start Barband, I, I see why you did it. And this was 2016, so seven years ago. How did your plans, your goals, your dreams for Barband, how do they match with what actually happened over the next seven years? Did you, in your wildest dream, dare to imagine something like this happening, being acquired seven years later? I, I think we certainly envisioned a future in which we might be acquired. It took longer then I think that seven-year time horizon took longer than anything we imagined. We didn't know how long there was going to be demand for this. And there still is demand. There's more demand for Barbin than ever. We're growing. I think that what was the head-scratcher and what I could never have predicted was how sticky it would be and the scale it would get hmm. to. I, I thought that I had some experience and have gained some experience over the years with selling digital media properties. Nothing quite at the scale of Barbin. And I think that there was a universe in which I imagined starting it, and a couple of years later, maybe we exited it, and then I move on to the next thing. I'm still at Barb, even post-exit, not because there's an earnout, but because I want to be, because I still believe in this, because I think that within two years, we're going to be the biggest fitness site in the world, not just the biggest strength site in the world. There's still so much growth. Hmm. So I think what I couldn't have imagined was the scale. We had over, well over 30 million readers in 2022. Never have imagined that was possible. Partially because I think the audience when we started it wasn't that big, right? I think the the total addressable audience grew and people interested in the stuff, it grew over the last seven years. That's something we couldn't have predicted. To answer your question, yeah, I, I could have envisioned selling it, but no, I don't think I would have envisioned it being the size it got to. So nothing like this. Yeah, 2016 was a different time. As old as that makes us sound, the content was not as saturated. YouTube and vloggers were not a thing and, and social media was not a thing as much as it is today, not in a way it is today. Like you said, you would never even dare to imagine that the interest would be so huge that it ended up being. You said 32 million users last year? Right? Yeah, we had about, about, about 32 million readers last year. Which yep. is just not something you start a company with dreaming about. Like th- th- That's massive growth. That's, that, that's absolutely incredible. So let's let's talk about the journey there. What was your biggest aha moment where you realized, okay, this could actually be something? Like, what was the first time you actually thought that? It was probably during the 2016 Olympics. We were, I was still writing most of the content myself. So I was writing recaps of every Olympic weightlifting session. I believe there were 16 sessions 
during the Rio Olympics that year across the men's and women's weight classes. I was writing every, recaps for every single one of them myself. And I started noticing that we were getting links naturally from Wikipedia, from larger mainstream sports websites, because we were putting up more detailed results and putting them up faster, so faster and at higher quality than NBC was, than the actual broadcaster in the United States for the Olympics. And of course, people were linked to us because we had the best results. We had the most accurate stuff, the best context. We had it up quickly. So we started being linked as a primary source. And that triggered something in my brain where I was like, oh my goodness, there is demand for this. Not just demand among nerds like me, but there's mainstream demand for this because it's relevant to a broader audience. And that also made me think, maybe there's an opportunity for organizational partnerships here. Like, how can we make things more official? How can this be more than just a blog? Yeah, it was probably around, I'd say, August 2016. Okay, so Rio Olympics. That, that was like the big, the first big break that you got. And let's also talk about uh, there. there's always mistakes. There's something that could have been done better. But throughout the seven years, what are your like, top few things that you could have done differently that would have accelerated your growth, put you on a even better path than you have been on? I We would have invested, I think, in newsletters earlier on. We have great two, we have two okay. great newsletters lists. We have a general one and a bodybuilding focus one. I think we would have invested in newsletter-specific staff earlier because it's tougher to grow a newsletter than ever been or than it has mm. been as a, or than it was a few years ago. Would have invested in those, in, in that content, and that team earlier. That's a big one for me. I think that invested in video at different times, at different levels. Video is expensive in our industry because if you're showing some equipment, review equipment, you have to have that in hand, right? You have to have a space to do that. So I think that timeline, I don't know how much I would have changed. I probably would have grown the team a little faster. We were really slow to grow our team because it took us so much work to raise our relatively small, in the grand scheme of things, seed round. We didn't think we'd be able to raise more investment, so we grew extremely slowly and very conservatively. And it ultimately worked out. But in hindsight, with the gift of hindsight, I realized we could have put our foot on the pedal a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And you specifically mentioned newsletter. So... When did you start the newsletter? How quickly did it grow? What, what's the newsletter strategy overall for Barbara? Yeah, we started a newsletter strategy in a small way in like 2018. It wasn't super focused. And we really recharged that strategy last year in 2022. We have two newsletters. We have a general barbell newsletter and a bodybuilding specific one called The Ripped Report. Both have seen really nice growth. We like the trajectory they're on. Very useful tools for us to deliver content to an audience and audiences in different ways. We do have a dedicated newsletter editor. I think that what we are focused on now is sustainable growth with newsletters. I think that if we had started really focusing on those more heavily in 2017, we could have seen like meteoric growth in newsletters. I think the appetite was a little stronger then. But really, it's about taking the content that we produce on the site and modifying it for a form factor that's really appealing to people to be in their inboxes every morning. The results are our prompt. We do, we sell sponsorships in the newsletters. That's re relevant and valuable for us. Our open rates, are specifics here, but are very high, right? Our open rates and click-through rates are very high. People respond to them. I'm an entrepreneur at heart. I just wish everything was four times as big. So I wish if we had started three years earlier, four years earlier, maybe we'd have four times the size of the lists. That's my only complaint. 
Okay, but, but you're doing great with the newsletter still. It, it just could have been done a bit earlier and with more focus on it. I mentioned this in the email that I sent you yesterday, two days ago, generative AI, like you can't talk about content in 2023, like you're almost like legally required to mention generative AI and chat GPT and all that when you're talking about content. You talked about this, I believe on full Ratchet podcast, I can link to this in the description where you talked about the role it plays in content producing. What's your like one hot take, one, one, one main takeaway about using generative AI in 2023 to produce content? Like Google just loosened their guidelines. I read about it yesterday. They don't say it's bad, that it needs to be useful, I think, is what they changed it to this week, the guidance. So what, what do you think about that? I think that it will not, my hot take is it will not kill written content generated by human, but mm-hmm. what it pushes everyone toward is going true multimedia. So if you if your strategy is only written content as a media company these days, I think it's really scary. I think what you need to do is focus on how do you produce a slew of content across platforms. Written, visual, social, video, maybe audio. How is that content accessible? How is it integrated well across platforms? Right? How are you creating content packages? that can live everywhere people want to consume that content. I think that's really important. And that's something that I think we're better able to do now that we're part of a larger company, more resources and more organizational knowledge and structure to do that. My hot take is it's not the end of the world for content, but it does mean that, hey, a written content strategy is not going to be enough forward. You have to diversify. Okay, okay. That makes a lot of sense. But then written content for a, a startup like Barband it is t- still at the core of everything you do, right? Yep, 100%. Well, one thing, pardon okay. me, one, th- okay. one, thing, one thing that I do want to emphasize is we write on topics relevant to people's health and well-being. Expert verification is very important. Right. Google tends to like, you can say, hey, this expert wrote this or this expert verified this, right? Comes to matters of hey, your money, your life, that's a, a term that people in the SEO space used. We fit under that banner. And even generative AI content, Google might have loosened their restrictions, but they're still going to value content that they can tie to specific human beings with track records of producing or verifying quality content. I think generative AI is impactful. I think that it needs to factor into a content strategy. But my hot take is I'm not losing my head over it. I'm just saying, where will this push us? Like, how does this influence the type of content we move forward, we move forward with on which platforms? It doesn't make panic, is what I'll say. And it shouldn't. Like, anyone who really bothered to learn a bit about generative AI, that's what they say. This is a tool that's going to help me and people who want to use it in a proper way. It's not something that will allow some hack to generate a million articles on a topic and just overtake me into rankings. Like that just hopefully that's not how it's going to play out. Yeah, I, I think that's a great response and, and I think that's really where we are at the moment with generative AI. So going back to the journey of Barband, like this is one thing that I really want to hear. If you had to start if you were starting this today, like a similar company startup today, what would your strategy, what would the roadmap be for you? How would you do it differently? I'd be heavy on video and social very heavy on video and social. And I would basically pair, I would create content packages. So 
I would make sure that every written article, most written articles had a video component, and then those had individual social components as well. No, I talked about diversifying the type of content. Barbend right now, we're seen as a news source. We're seen as a primary source for a lot of this stuff. And we know that if we put up a news article and it's relevant, we will do really well in the rankings. A lot of people will be fed that content. Ultimately, if it were a new site, how are you differentiating? How are you creating a hundred different ways for a hundred different people to find your content? It would be more about content packages, right? Can we set up an editorial structure to where, okay, we write something, we break some news, then we have a reaction video that clipped and then posted across social platforms, et cetera. You might produce fewer actual articles that way, right? But you're producing more shots on goal for each piece of content. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like you said earlier, if you're just written content, if that's your base and that's the only thing you're doing, I really don't see how those companies are dying. They're, yeah. they're disappearing left and right. Barband is still crushing it and killing it, which is amazing, but yeah. The, the company that acquired us, Pillar 4, they don't, a lot of big media companies invest in contracting companies. They invest in contu- companies that are getting smaller and then they can buy them at a discount. That is a strategy, right? I'm not going to say it's a good strategy or a bad strategy, but it is a strategy. Pillar 4 is the opposite. They tend to invest in companies that have really amazing growth trajectories, right? And then they bring on a company, and then we can see that growth trajectory. We've actually had a relationship with that company for a few years. We've seen them, how they operate. We see when they acquire a website or a digital property on the up and how they really invest in it and grow it, right? And sometimes we've seen them acquire something, and three years later on, it's five times the size, by certain metrics. So what I really, and, and why I think it's a great home for Barbend is it's like, hey, let's acquire sites with momentum, with growth trajectory, not sites that, hey, have maybe had a bad, we're big, and then maybe had a bad few years and we can get them at a discount. Again, that is a strategy. We see a lot right. of big players in the space doing that, but I, I think they're basically buying, they're buying the car for the parts, not for the car. That's well said. That's really well said. Yeah. So the core, the, the main topic on this podcast usually is optimization and experimentation online with websites primarily. Did you do anything in that space? Did you do any any user research, any optimization of the content of the website for conversions? Tell me about that, please. It's con- What I'll say is it's a constant process. When you're at the size that Barbent at... Oh, that, absolutely. Have to invest in resources, whether it's heat mapping, A-B testing, ev- cohort testing, it is an important part of what we do. Now that we have more resources as part of a larger company with more teams and organizational knowledge, it, it can do more and more of that, right? But performance optimization is huge, right? You take a, a, an article that's creating a lot of traffic or a lot of revenue, either via ads or affiliate monetized, whatever it is, it's a top performer. The impact of improving that page by a few percentage points is huge if it's one of your top performers. And then how do you apply those principles across different types of content? It's very important. And keeping content updated and fresh is also important. I think that SEO has this reputation for being gimmicky and being a short, uh, being a way to get to shortcut things. But the line between content optimization and SEO is very slim and very blurry. How do you optimize your content? Make sure it's great for you. Make sure it's accessible. Make sure it's loading. All this sorts of, make sure it's mobile optimized. All this sorts of, all this sort of stuff. 
make sure that people can get the info they want as quickly and as efficiently as possible. It's not so different from SEO. These those two things are are getting more interwoven, and I think that's generally a good right. So people talk about SEO and then they talk about content optimization. I think really you're starting to talk about the same thing, right? So if you have a really top performing piece of content in a very competitive category and you just let it sit for a couple years, it's going to perform worse and worse because queries people are entering, the information they're looking for, the information available, maybe it's evolved. In our space, maybe the research has updated, right? Maybe we just know more about a topic than we did a couple years ago. If that's not reflected in our content, we're going to lose. Yeah, so it is a practice for you guys to go back and rewrite and, and keep everything fresh, yes. at least the top performance, right? That, Very that, much. That, I believe that's a huge part of your success. Okay. Very much. Uh, yeah, that just one, one final question. Now that you got acquired and now that there's more funding available, I assume, what is what is your goal now? What do you want to achieve with Barband? Like you, you mentioned a top fitness resource, but what's the path to getting yeah. there? Yeah, I might get in trouble because I am. I, I now have bosses, right? Which is a lot of fun, and I love them to death. I love the team. I love being part of this company, being part of Pillar Four. So what? So this might get me in trouble, but I want Barbin to be the largest fitness site in the world. Full stop. Right? Okay. I, why would you get in trouble like that? That, well, that would not. I'm sure they have. I'm sure they would like that too. But they might. They. I, I don't know. They haven't told me not to say that, but they might say, "Oh, they're very friendly folks," and they might say, "Oh, be a little bit more humble." They might encourage me to be more humble. They okay. might encourage me. They might encourage me to be a little bit more reserved. Not because they don't believe we can get there, but it's it, it's very brash to come out and say we're going to be the biggest. We're going to be the best in this very big category. But I think we will. Maybe that's just the. Maybe it's just because Barbend was originally my idea. I'm one of the founders, and and it has this, a, a big place in my heart. Right. How we get there is diversifying content across platforms. It's getting broader and deeper. And what I mean by that is that we have to produce content for a larger addressable audience and more audiences, but the content we produce has to be deeper within each of those silos. We have to get broader and deeper, like digging a hole. You have to make the hole wider, but you also have to dig the hole deeper at the same time. That's really tough. And when you're a small company, especially a small content company, it's almost impossible to do both of those things at the same time, which is why I encourage people just starting out to niche down and to get more specific in their content, okay. right? Now that we have more resources, we can do both. Finding that right balance is imperfect, right? That's what makes it difficult. There's no playbook to do that. There's no playbook to become the biggest fitness site in the world because then everyone would be following it, right? But I'm excited to help our team continue to forge that, and I think we're going to get there. And we have to be uncompromising on quality. We have to be uncompromising on quality. Because if we start slipping on the quality of our content for the sake of growth, we're never going to be the biggest and the best. Because in order to be the biggest, you have to be the best. Your quality has to be at a consistent top level. That's something that wasn't true online necessarily 10 years ago, but I believe it is very much the case these days. I, I definitely agree with that. Google got smarter. The bottom line is Google got much smarter with content. And people also, it's not as easy to hack this to cheat the system, basically, with rankings and everything. I think you're, you seem to be on the right path. The optimism is there. The, the enthusiasm is still there after seven years. I will be watching. I wish you the best. I, I hope you guys do 
achieve that lofty goal of, of becoming the number one fitness resource in the world because then I can say, hey, I know that guy, if nothing else. But yeah, I, and once again, I want to thank you for being on the podcast and to everyone who was listening. This shows you the power of content. If you produce the best possible content for the audience, that's what Google will tell you. Just make sure it's helpful. Make sure it's helpful. This is the story of Barband as well. It started in 2016. You guys have been doing it for seven years and you really made it big and, and you're only getting stronger. So once again, thank you, David. Everyone listening, I would ask you to consider rating, reviewing, and sharing this episode, and I will talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.